wilderness like that, I'm sure you felt you were right there with Israel. Um, I have to confess that's partly my fault. Uh, the Bible reading for that was supposed to be from verse 50, but I forgot to add a zero uh, onto my email to Kenneth. Um, but it's actually a really uh, good and instructive way because we never actually really hear those parts of the Bible read, do we? Uh, and I think uh, in a moment later in this sermon, we're going to be uh, realizing why actually feeling the almost water torture force of that chapter uh, will help us understand it even better. Uh, why don't we pray? We've got a big task ahead of us tonight. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word. Uh, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to accept your word, written by your son, uh, written by you, by your spirit, and about your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I was in my final year of law school when the call finally came. Uh, it was a law firm where I had interned the last summer. And they were calling to offer me my very first job. You know, of course, I accepted the offer. I, I WhatsApped my family. I uh, plastered it all over Facebook. Um, and you see, after four clerkships, five years study, 10 overloaded semesters, and thousands of words written in exams and essays, I had finally won the prize, or what everybody strove for. I was so excited. And then, fear. You see, I still had one year of law school to go, and what, what if I failed a subject? What if I couldn't take up that job because in that final stretch, I stumbled at the finish line? I had received a promised future. I was standing on the cusp of its reality. But I wasn't going to enter it unless I was fully prepared. Well, over the last few months, you've been tracking Israel's journey through numbers. Uh, quite literally, its journey in the wilderness. And today, thanks be to God, that journey comes to an end. You know, just as I stood on the very edge of my first job in Numbers 31 to 36, Israel stands quite literally at the cusp of its destiny. After 40 years wandering in the wilderness, an entire generation wiped out for rebelling against Yahweh. Israel now stands exactly where their parents stood, on the banks of the Jordan, the border of Canaan, the Promised Land. Well, if Numbers follows Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, these final chapters show Yahweh leading them out of the wilderness. God is preparing Israel to enter the Promised Land. He is creating for himself a holy people. God is creating for himself a holy people. And you can follow along in the outlines that you've got. Well, if these chapters really are all about God preparing Israel for Canaan, then chapter 31, our first reading, hits us right between the eyes, doesn't it? I mean, we're confronted with what has to be one of the most shocking events in Numbers, if not the entire Bible. Now, think back with me to Numbers 25 that Andrew preached on a few weeks ago. Now, Israel was sleeping with the enemy. The daughters of Midian were leading them into adultery and idolatry. And in response, in judgment, Yahweh sends a plague on Israel, wiping out 24,000 men. These were the very last of Israel's first Exodus generation. And now in chapter 31, Yahweh commands Israel to wage war on the Midianites. Uh, chapter 31, verse 1 to avenge 
the people of Israel. The wrong must be set right and Midian must be punished. So Israel does what it sometimes does well, it obeys, goes to war. They do as they're told, they kill the kings and the men of Midian, plunder their cities and burn them to the ground. Well, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but if you're feeling just a little bit uncomfortable with all this violence, take heart, don't worry, at least they spare the women. Well, that's not what Moses thought. Look at what he says in verses 15 to 17. Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. Wow. I mean, we're so used to sparing the women and children, aren't we? But here Yahweh says, kill them. How, we, how do we deal with an incident like this? How, how are we to think about this and how can, we, how can this, of all incidents, of all events, possibly be preparing Israel for its future in the promised land? Well, here's a few things to note. I, I want us to notice why God makes this demand. You see, of everyone in Midian... It was their women who led Israel into to adultery, wasn't it? It was their women who led Israel away from God. Of all people in Midian, these were the ones who were primarily responsible for the events of chapter 25. Now, of course, we should be clear, that doesn't let Israel off the hook. Remember what happened. They paid a heavy price. 24,000 dead. The last of the Exodus generation annihilated. So we come to this text and we mustn't read this as God being vindictive. No, God is being holy. His anger is not arbitrary or capricious. It's not off the whim. His judgment is just and right. And in this battle against Midian, God is making it crystal clear to us, isn't he? He is a holy God creating a holy people. And as uncomfortable as it may be for us as sinners, God will not tolerate sin. And as Israel marches into Canaan, neither should it. The holiness of God demands a ruthless war against sin. Well, if you're not a Christian today, you might, you're not a Christian, you might be wondering, how could Christians worship such a violent God? A God like that, why would you want to follow him? Why would you want to believe in him? Well, we're not going to be able to answer that question in full today, but here, let me offer a mere starting point. Uh, if you've ever been to law school or watch Suits, which is as good as law school sometimes, uh, you know that at least the punishment must fit the crime. It must be proportionate. And so what we often do when we come to a text like this is we start with the crime and then we move to the punishment. We look at the crime and we go, yeah, sure, that's bad, but uh, annihilation, war, slaughter, a bit much. Bit of overkill. But let me ask, what if we thought about it? God is a holy God, isn't he? And his judgments are always right. So if we think about punishment and then crime, here's my question. If the punishment is so severe... What can we then tell about how serious the crime is? 
If the punishment is death, then surely sin, adultery, idolatry has to be proportionately severe. It must be the most serious offense against God. And understanding it in this way, God isn't unjust for punishing sin. If anything, he would be unjust if he didn't. Yahweh is a holy God. And in these chapters, he's creating for himself a holy people. He's preparing a nation that will be ruthless in its war against sin. Well, if you were an Israelite and God had just given you victory over the Midianites, you might think, I have every reason now to trust and obey this God. Every reason to enter into the promised land with confidence. Which is why the request that comes in chapter 32 hits us like a left hook, doesn't it? Look at 32 verse 5. This is what Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh come to Moses asking. If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Do not take us into the promised land. Leave us on this side of the covenant border. It almost feels like we don't want the covenant blessings or inheritance of God. We much prefer their motivation is the material wealth and prosperity this side of the Jordan. Well, I don't know about you, but when I read those words, my heart sinks into my stomach. Like a bad movie on constant replay. Israel comes full circle. I mean, think about it for a moment. Not only do they stand exactly where their fathers stood, not only do they confront exactly the same thing which their fathers confronted, you see, for these tribes, they are at risk of falling exactly where their fathers fell. Just listen to how Moses responds to their request in verse 8. Your fathers did this when I sent them to Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. Verse 13, And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold... You have risen in your father's place. A brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. Can you feel the force of what's being said here? You are standing at the cusp of God's promises, but just like your fathers, you risk falling so far short. Do not repeat the mistakes of your fathers. Do not disobey the living God. I mean, this is rebellion redux, isn't it? A crisis that threatens to split Israel that could very well cast it back into the wilderness to be so close and yet in the final stretch to stumble at the finish line. Well, let's see what happens next and it might surprise us. The three and a half tribes come to Moses with a deal, as it were. Uh, we'll cross the Jordan into the promised land. We'll help you in one sense, and will help you, the rest of the nine and a half tribes, settle in Canaan. 
And only after we do that will we then cross back into our side of the Jordan. We'll cross back to settle in Gilead. And rather surprisingly, Moses takes the deal. If they fight alongside the rest of Israel to occupy Canaan, Gilead, this side of the Jordan, will be their inheritance. But a warning with it. If you don't, know that you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Well, you've all been going through numbers, so you've, you've seen certain patterns, haven't you? And we're almost ready now for crises just like this one to go exactly the same way that everyone else has. Rebellion and judgment. Uh, whether it's mutiny against Moses, refusing to enter the promised land, or adultery with the Midianites, few crises have really ended well for Israel, have they? Almost all of them, in fact, have ended in judgment and death. But here in these final chapters... Praise God, a crisis is averted. Uh, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh seem to not have really have learned from their fathers, have they? And yet still, Yahweh graciously extends the boundaries of the promised land to include Gilead. Uh, John Calvin says that he adds to Israel's inheritance in spite of Israel's sin. There is a new hope for Israel in this second generation. Israel stands where its fathers stood, but this time there is no rebellion. There is no judgment. Israel looks to its future now, clinging on to the promises of God. A few years ago, I really loved watching a particular TV series, 24. Uh, it was about a government agent, if you've seen it, Jack Bauer. Uh, he would, uh, his task was to stop a terrorist plot. Uh, in 24 hours. What was unique about this show at its time was how it was filmed. See, it was filmed over 24 episodes, each episode being an hour in real time. Um, and at the beginning of each episode would be a flashback. It always started with the very same words, each and every time. Previously on 24. It will show us in many ways how we arrived at this hour and after our wonderful Bible reading, we all feel it, don't we? Previously in the wilderness. Time after time, place after place. In chapter 33, Moses is giving Israel a flashback. He wants to let this second generation know how their parents left Egypt, why we're here, and maybe a more pressing question if I were the second generation, why have we arrived only now? He takes them through camp after camp, stage after stage to remind them of their journey. 41 stages, yes, I sat there and counted. 40 years, two generations. It's tragic, isn't it? I mean, we're tired by the end of it. Imagine them. But you know what makes this journey even more tragic? Is how long it should have taken. Do you know how long it should have taken? 11 days. Deuteronomy 1 tells us it should have taken a mere 11 days. Think about that. 11 days, 40 years. If you're thinking full years, 11 days, 14,600 days. But finally, at long last, we've arrived. We stand on this border, about to enter 
the promised land, about to finally leave the wilderness, and we remember where we've come from. We look back in order to look forward, don't we? And as we do, Yahweh is giving us our marching orders. What shall we do in this new land? What sort of people shall we be? And God is creating for himself a holy people. And in these final three chapters, he's, pre he's preparing his holy people to be a holy nation. Three times in these last three chapters, Yahweh begins with these words. When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. See, he's preparing Israel for life in the promised land. And it's to be a life marked by holiness. I just look at chapter 33, verse 51. Uh, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall, number one, drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Number two, destroy all their figured stones. Number three, destroy all their metal images. And number four, demolish all their high places. Friends, can you see what God is saying here? Yahweh's holy people living in his holy land must live under his holy rule. Israel must be holy. It must be set apart from the world. It must not be friends with, tolerant of, or even neutral towards other gods. For in this new land, Yahweh is king. He will have no equal, no contender. He will have no rival. Israel must not tolerate sin. If anything, this new nation must be ruthlessly holy. And we think back to the war against the Midianites for a moment, don't we? Because just like that war, this is a quest, a battle for holiness. The stakes are life and death. And the ruthlessness with which Israel fought the Midianites is to be the ruthlessness with which they fight against the Canaanites, which is to be the ruthlessness with which they pursue holiness in this land. God is preparing his people to enter this land. He's preparing them to be a holy nation. And in our final three chapters, not just of this sermon, but of this book, we read of three aspects of that preparation. The land the Levites, and the least. Well, I was never very good at geography in high school, and chapter 34 reads like a high school geography textbook, doesn't it? And if you're as spatially challenged as I am, it can, be e it can be easy to be distracted from the meaning of this chapter. But it's a beautiful message, because God is drawing the boundary lines of the promised land. He's not just warning them, hey guys, this is all you're going to get. No, he's showing them this is all you're going to get. You see, remember, at this stage, all of this land was occupied by the Canaanites. And yet Yahweh here is promising Israel possession of that very land. He's promising them victory. Uh, notice in verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, something curious comes out. He's expanding their inheritance to include the land of Gilead. The land that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh asked to settle in is now encapsulated within the covenant promises of God. Yahweh is not just delivering on his covenant promise, he is amplifying it. Probably the only government and ruler who delivers on something on time, under budget, and ahead of schedule. And in verses 16 to 28, he appoints leaders to distribute that land. You see, no tribe will be left out. 
For God's promises are not just for Israel as a whole, but for each and every tribe, both large and small. Yahweh, praise God, is creating for himself a holy people to live in a holy land. Number two, the Levites. Well, I don't know if you guys looked at chapter 18, but in the chapter 18, we learn that the Levites are a special tribe of Israel. It's their job to look after the tent of meeting. Uh, chapter 18 tells us that the Levites bore Israel's sin so that it would not die for them. In other words, these Levites kept Israel holy. And it's no wonder then that Numbers chapter 35 is all about preparing for the Levites. It's preparing for holiness. In chapter 18, the Levites received a tithe from all the tribes of Israel. And here in chapter 25, they received cities from all the lands of Israel. Uh, these cities of refuge would be safe havens uh, for those who unintentionally kill someone in the promised land. And so long as the sinner sought refuge within the walls of this city, he would be protected from the consequences of his crime. It's a bit random, isn't it? I mean, we're kind of moving towards the promised land and we get cities of refuge and what? Like, it just comes out of nowhere. But in verses 33 to 34, God makes clear why. And that's what we want to understand, isn't it? Why? You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You see, friends, just as the Levites were individual guardians of holiness, so too are their cities bastions of holiness. They ensure that the land remains undefiled, unpolluted, that the land remains holy. So seeing God's preparation of the land in 34, of the Levites in 35, and now in Numbers 36, for the least. Well, in chapter 27, we've met these daughters before, haven't we? The daughters of Zelophehad. Uh, these daughters are at risk of losing their inheritance. Uh, their father died in the wilderness along with the first generation of Israelites. Uh, Zelophehad had five daughters. Lucky man. But uh, unfortunately for him in his culture, he did not have a son. And so, what would happen to his inheritance if he didn't have a son? It would be distributed to whichever men his daughters married, to other tribes. So presumably for Zelophehad and his daughters, all that was theirs would be no longer theirs. And in a world where inheritance is everything, these daughters risk losing everything. They are vulnerable and they are the least among Israel. And into this situation, God intervenes. Uh, these daughters shall marry within their own tribe. And so their land will not be lost to another. It will remain with them. It's, again, it's a strange place to end numbers, isn't it? But here God shows that he guarantees the inheritance, not just of Israel as a whole, but each and every single person in it. All that has been promised shall be received by the largest and the smallest, the greatest and the least. God is creating for himself a holy people and he prepares for them a holy land guarded by cities of refuge, providing for the least among Israel. Strange place to end, isn't it? I mean, the book of Numbers can just seem so distant and foreign to us, can't it? Sacrifices, blood, 
priests driving spears through sinners, something we haven't yet seen here at this cathedral. Um, but at the same time, Numbers is quite near and familiar to us, isn't it? Our struggles with holiness, suffering from the consequences of disobedience, learning from the mistakes or not learning from the mistakes of those who have gone before us. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that Numbers was written for our instruction, that what happened to Israel is an example for us. So I guess we get to the end of this and ask, what can we learn? Well, I want to suggest three take-home messages for us today. Three take-home messages. Number one, a call to holiness. Have you noticed the word that has been repeated almost a hundred times over the last half an hour or so? The word that this, these final chapters are, is all about. Holiness. The, the war against the Midianites. The commands to cleanse the land. The cities of refuge. Holiness. 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 And Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, he writes not to Israel as a nation, but to Christians in exile, Christians without a land. And remarkably, these exiles without a home, without a land, Peter calls a holy nation. You see, we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to be that holy nation. But unlike Israel, our holiness is not militaristic. We just look, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. If anything, our holiness is our godliness, our Christ-likeness. It's curious, isn't it, how Peter uses the language of warfare, that sin wages war against our souls. Well, here's an idea. If sin wages war against us, then let us wage war against it. Let us heed the marching orders of our king. Let us be that holy nation, ruthlessly intolerant of sin. So many of us are not so foolish as to flaunt our sin in public, nor do we exactly battle against it, though. I mean, we tolerate it in secret, we feed it in silence, and we cultivate it in darkness. Now, we might not act on our lust by sleeping around, but we'll feed it with pornography. We may not act on our envy by backstabbing a colleague, but we'll encourage it through lunchtime gossip. We may not act on our fear of man by outright denying God, but we'll avoid any mention of him among our friends. And into this situation, Numbers is calling us to be ruthlessly holy, to wage war against sin, for God is creating for himself a holy people. And Numbers is that call to holiness. Number two, a warning against disobedience. Well, if chapter 32 teaches us anything, it's that unfortunately, the apple doesn't really fall far from the tree, does it? I mean, we're so prone to repeating the mistakes of our fathers. And it's not as if they weren't warned. I mean, God warned them that their sin would find them out. Their disobedience would bring judgment. And you and I need to read these warnings written to them as warnings written for us. Just as the first generation was a cautionary tale for the second, both generations are warnings for us. Friends, these are warnings against disobeying a holy God. 
This is a God whom you do not want to disobey. For if you do, the consequences will be great. But how much greater is it that this God would give us warnings at all? I mean, just think about it time after time. He pleads with us to turn to him, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that, should, that all should reach repentance. Warnings are not the judgment of an impersonal deity. They are the mercy of a loving father. A father who patiently pleads with his children to come home. Come home. Let me urge you to heed these warnings. Do not disobey this God. Obey him. Submit to him. Follow him. And finally, a reminder of faithfulness. You know, as we reach the end of this book, we may hear the call to holiness. Indeed, we may even heed the warning against disobedience. But friends, we must be overwhelmed by the reminder of God's faithfulness. I mean, just think about Israel's actions throughout Numbers. Grumbling, complaining, ingratitude, stubbornness, disobedience, rebellion, adultery, idolatry. The list goes on and on and on. And nevertheless, here we stand. God brings his people home. Not because of their faithfulness, but so often in spite of their faithlessness. He brought them to the promised land, a place where they finally will be free from slavery, sin and struggle. A place where Yahweh would be their God and they would be his people. A place of perfect holiness. A place of final rest. We all like the sound of final rest, don't we? I mean, after 40 years of wandering barefoot over hot sand, just imagine how much Israel longed to rest. Well, friends, what if you and I can enjoy that final rest as well? What if you and I can also have that forgiveness, that freedom from sin? You and I can also be in a perfect relationship with God. You and I can also enter a place of perfect holiness. What if that were possible? Well, praise be to God. It is possible in Jesus Christ. Jesus and trusting in him is the means by which you and I can enter that rest. You might say, I'm just not holy enough. I'm not good enough. Well, friend, Jesus lived a perfectly holy life in your place. But don't I deserve to die for my sin, just like the Midianites did? Well, friend, Jesus died on a cross in your place. Just as we sung earlier, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we reach this point now, don't we? Bit of an impasse. Without excuse, what then must I do to be saved? What must I do to be forgiven and free? What must I do to enter that perfect holiness and final rest? Trust in Jesus. For Jesus is the apex of the faithfulness of God. He will bring us home. He was faithful to Israel. He is faithful to us. He brought Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And friend, if you trust in him, he will bring you out of death and into his holy life. If we trust in Jesus. Why don't we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.
a word that can be difficult to understand and a word that can be difficult to receive. God, be working deep in our hearts. Humble us to be teachable. Humble us to receive it, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and our hands as well, that we might respond in faith and repentance to be a holy people, a holy nation that you've created us and destined us to be. These things we ask and pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.